broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Today's program was brought to you by Whole Foods Market. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. Well, hello, and welcome to Chef's Story, brought to you on HeritageRadioNetwork.com, and I'm Dorothy Can Hamilton, the CEO of the International Culinary Center, and today we have one of the biggest chefs around today. It's so exciting. Um, I'm very pleased to welcome to these studios at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, Michael Anthony. Uh, You might know him as the executive chef of the fantastic Gramercy Tavern restaurant in New York City. But most importantly this year, Michael won the 2012 Outstanding Chef Award from the James Beard Foundation. What that means, he's like the top chef. Forget about it. He's the top chef. And so uh, we're going to just jump right into it. Michael, welcome. Hi, Dorothy. Thank you for inviting me to be here today. Oh, you're, you're really welcome. So, well, I just want to ask you um, a few quick-fire question. What was it like to get up on the stage this past May, just a few weeks ago, and receive that award? What was going through your head? <laughs> uh, I, I was really nervous. Uh, when, you know, when your name is called, it seems a little surreal, and uh, I was at the ceremony kind of surrounded uh, by my colleagues, uh, Danny, uh, Paul Bolsbevin, Kevin Mahan, Juliet Pope, uh, the sous chefs, my wife, we're all, we're all there. We've, we had been in that position before, uh, <laughs> having been nominated uh, for the category, and it's, uh, it is a bit of a gut-wrenching experience while uh, it's extremely exciting. And um, I, uh, I was trying to stay a little calmer than past years. You know, it's, you, you sit on pins and needles while you're waiting for the, the ceremony to unfold. And uh, having that happen was really one of the most amazing feelings, uh, m- mostly because I could get up on the stage and say uh, in front of everyone how, I, you know, how thankful I am for, for the position that I'm in. I, I got to tell... You know the people that, some of the people that mean the most to me in my life, what I think about them, and that you don't really get opportunities in life to, out loud say those things. There are very few ceremonies uh, that allow us the opportunity to, to kind of speak out like that in front of a lot of people. And wow, you know, there that auditorium was was packed. I, I couldn't quite see uh, our group, uh, given the lights. So I um, read my announce my uh, acceptance speech to Thomas Keller, which I thought that was just, <laughs> just fine. He was sitting in the front row. <laughs> we I don't know there. each other I that well, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, just the same. It was pretty special. It was it was a fabulous and a very humble speech. I have to say, you were incredibly gracious. Well, what does it take? I, we've got a lot of listeners out there, and I just want to get into it. Saying, what does it take to become the top chef in America? Uh, we're you're a Midwesterner, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I grew up in Cincinnati. Cincinnati. And so were, did you grow up in a food household? Or? 
Um, my family is of Italian American origin, and we had this uh, um, nostalgia around getting together with family at the table. But but it you know it's, it was a working class family with pretty humble um, uh, pretty humble food celebrations. So yeah, we you know my dad would insist on having you know Sunday pasta nights, and that my brother and I have a younger brother would sit at the table well through the end of the meal and we would visit with my grandparents and you know we would roll our eyes a lot as as young guys that we had to actually you know do that sort of thing but yeah there was a bit of an insistence of kind of being together so you had but you weren't one of those um people that grew up on your grandmother's shirt strings um, or, or, uh, or apron strings cooking uh, I, no i can't i can't tell that story that you know at five years old i hit that revelation it, it right. didn't happen my mom was a good cook and my family all had great gardens and that was great i, I as a kid i didn't I didn't have a special attachment to the kitchen, though. Okay. So, but in your background, what I found interesting is that you you went to college and you majored in business. Yeah. And in French? Yeah. I And Japanese? I, I minored in <laughs> Japanese. The, the language part of it came easy. easy. The business part came hard. Uh, I, I had traveled a little bit and lived for a short time uh uh, outside of Watertown, New York, which is near the Canadian border on the St. Lawrence Seaway, and had visited Montreal a few times and had made some friends. And as a young guy, had that that kind of fascination with uh, with the French speaking culture and just trying to connect with those friends. And so that perked my curiosity young. And um, and somehow, uh, you know, all the the kind of regular lessons through high school, I took French in high school, like a lot of people did. It just it sunk in, and I, I had a chance to to travel to France a couple of times, and I I liked the idea of you know being able to find a new way to. So w- to talk when with did the people. food percolate into your DNA? It was after I, I graduated from school. Uh, I when I graduated, I I really did you mean not, college? When I graduated from college, the day after I graduated, I moved to Japan. And why was, was that? I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. Uh, I I knew I wanted to travel. I had a curiosity in uh, in exploring Japan, and I I wanted to kind of get some practical. Wait a minute, where, where did you go to college? I went to Indiana University. Okay, and uh, so how did you get this uh, interest in Japan and at Indiana University? Uh, yeah, well, <clears throat> I think it came up. Um, I, I met some Japanese friends when I was traveling in Europe, and we had a couple of long stretches of a bike trip and. They told me a lot about home and uh, kind of fell in love with the idea. And so um, studied enough Japanese, uh, you know, as part of my undergraduate studies to get a minor. And I wanted to figure out how to use that language. I didn't want to just leave it as some sort of academic study. So I wanted to go and, and experience living in Japan. I think for probably all the romantic reasons. And when I got there, um, I picked up a, a bunch of part-time jobs. Uh, I worked in a bakery. I worked on a a uh, farm that was it was this amazing setting on uh, a live volcano um, no. in Nagano uh, prefecture uh, and the, it was actually a dairy farm there aren't that many dairy farms in in that part of uh, Japan and it was just this amazing rural setting the family uh, happened to be friends of a friend and they agreed to to give me room and board if I'd work if I would work on the farm for the summer and uh, and so the morning was filled with uh, chores in the barn, taking care of the, the dairy cows. And then the afternoon, they supplemented their income by uh, picking flowers and berries on the top of this mountain. It was an incredible scene. And um, 
and I was thrown into a Japanese-speaking environment uh, with a big family, uh, grandparents, parents, and lots of kids. And so it just was this uh, dream setting for someone that wanted to explore a new culture. Um, I can't say that that experience necessarily threw me into a restaurant. That happened later. But it did give me an understanding of what it was like to, to live in Japan. But So when did the real serious interest in food start? Did it start via a restaurant or yeah. did you just like eating or, or was it working on a farm or well kind of searching back like for those seeds of you know when when I had this notion of, of doing it professionally I, I knew I had lived in uh, France for a while and was um, that just travel lust as a as a uh, junior in college okay. I finished okay. that that mm-hmm. part of my degree by being in uh, the University of Strasbourg in Alsace and uh, fell in love with the, you know, this notion that dining can be an amazingly pleasurable part of your life. Uh, ate in some great restaurants, spent a lot of time uh, with uh, French families and friends eating, and, but was pretty convinced that not having grown up in a restaurant family and any training or inclination to working in a restaurant, I, I, I just thought it wasn't for me at that point. So fast forward, you know, after that summer of working on the farm, I, I went back to um, my little one-room apartment outside of Tokyo, and um, I made contact with Clint Hall, the um, food critic for the uh, Herald Tribune, the English-speaking newspaper in, in Tokyo at that time, and he was kind enough to introduce me to a chef uh, by the name of Shizuyo Shima, who... Um, was a, a woman chef and restaurant owner very rare thing in Tokyo um, she had this jewel like restaurant um, that uh, had about 25 seats <clears throat> and her in the kitchen and I explained you know, that I <clears throat> had an interest in, in learning about cooking professionally my plan was actually <clears throat> excuse me, to go to, um, to cooking school in Japan Really? Where were you going to go? I, I wanted to go to Tsuji Cooking School. Oh, so I love Mr. Tsuji. And, uh, and, and I want, so I, I had to improve my uh, Japanese speaking skills and then have you know, practical experience before doing that. Uh, I spent about a year working in her restaurant, and it was a very difficult experience. Wow. I thought it would just be in, here in this beautiful little restaurant, me, the chef, what an ideal learning experience. Well, what I, what I learned from... Shima was um, working in a restaurant is not all fun and and not all that glamorous. That if you really want to do it well, it, it's um, you know there was a gritty side to the business. How, many, how big a restaurant was it? It was it was very small. It was in the heart of Roppongi, which uh, at that time was a little bit of an international center for Tokyo. Now it has exploded and it's very very cosmopolitan. But at that at that point, it was a residential neighborhood. It was this favorite, charming restaurant. And in a lot of ways, it, there were. it's ironic that it had a lot of similarities to March Restaurant, another place that I worked here mm-hmm. in the city. Um, it felt like you were walking into someone's home as mm-hmm. you uh, entered. And it, it literally had about 25, 28 seats, depending on how we, we configured it. There was one server and, and, and the chef in the kitchen. And she... She taught me uh, so much about the foundation of cooking and the basics of loving uh, working in a restaurant um, that I, I find myself using um, either expressions or saying things that she told me. For example? 
think think ahead when you're working. Think three steps ahead. A good chef always knows what's going to happen three steps ahead of, of, of when it actually happens. Choose the right tool for for a job. Um, you know, think about the size pot you need or which knife will accomplish this job. You know, keep your station clean. Keep the kitchen clean. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my jobs uh, on Friday night was to literally to crawl into the grease pit and scrub it with a hand brush. I kind of, looking back on it, think that it was a little bit of boot camp, and she was testing to see, you know... How long, how long, I'm sorry, how long did you work there? I was there for about a year, and this was in the early 90s. Oh, Um, that's a long time. So, it was a long time, and I, I, while it, you know, someone asked me recently, a close family friend said, so, you know, you had this illustrious start cooking in Japan, and uh, what a way to get a career started, and I, really, looking back on it, um we can say that that was the inspiration that pushed me forward and it certainly provided me with the tools uh for the job that i do every day but i didn't know if i was going to survive it in the time that was happening to me i did not know that chef shima was <laughs> helping me or in the process of killing like me. me so it, you also worked in some of the greatest restaurants in france i had i well so when i I finally ended up, after a year of working with Shima, she said, listen, you're from the West. If you love Japan that much, you can come back. But you have to go to cooking school. I've taught you everything I know. Um, she had gone to Ferrandi. She did. And okay. so there's an interesting connection All right. The here. connection is, you know, the International Culinary Center was founded as the French Culinary Institute. And the French Culinary Institute did not spring like Phoenix from nothing. It sprung from this phenomenal school in Paris, Ferrandi. And uh, very few Americans were adventurous enough to go over to Paris and actually do the Ferrandi course. And Michael's one of them. No wonder you're such a powerhouse chef. So tell, how'd you get to Ferrandi? Well, it was really Shima that said uh, she was one of the very first international students that the school had ever seen. So she had gone to school there in the late 70s and uh, followed up by working for a, a famous chef named Jean de Laven, who... Um, is really of a generation that we have very little contact with uh, these days. But when I uh, moved to Paris on her advice to go to school, uh, she came and introduced me to Monsieur de Leven. And um, he was at the end of his career and had um, started a restaurant. He was no longer working in his famous three Michelin star restaurant, Le Camellia, but had gone into a a project with a famous uh, pastry chef, uh, named Jean Billet, uh, and their um, restaurant was called Le, Le Regain, and it, it had a short life, but it was a chance for me to get started in cooking school and have a part-time job. She sat me down over lunch to meet him, and I was scared to death. Um, he, he's a chef that had, it was notorious for his um, his his temperament, his, his difficult... I, I've met him, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and and so you know, I early on I didn't understand why or how things worked in the kitchen, but um, the sous chef actually wore soccer shin guards. Oh my gosh! That's I've how never he, heard that that's before. how he found out that things were going wrong in the restaurant. They were usually kicks to the shin. Oh my gosh! Um, so it was it was one of those very old school places. But as a, a young guy getting started in the business, it couldn't have been more challenging. And you know, I was kind of living. Day to day, penny to penny, I had just saved enough money to kind of get myself there and get going. Not that I was being paid any money in the restaurant, but it was certainly, uh, you know, an eye-opening experience to life of working in in the restaurant business in in Paris. So, so that 
that was she came again later just to make sure that I I was being serious and not in Paris wasting my time. She came twice to Paris to to follow up and and make sure I wasn't um, wasting my Your time. time. Okay. Well, speaking of time, we're going to have to take a break here, but we're going to come back and see how all that translates into Gramercy Tavern. So here we go. market, we review each and every product that hits our shelves. Our cleaning products are no exception. Our EcoScale ranking system rates each household cleaner so you know what you're getting. Now, during Earth Month and any time of the year, learn more at WholeFoodsMarket.com. Okay, welcome back. This is Chef's Story. And uh, I'm Dorothy Can Hamilton, and I'm speaking today to the superstar chef Michael Anthony of Gramercy Tavern and the most recent winner of the James Beard Outstanding Chef Award. Um, and we're t- we've just finished his sort of whirlwind apprenticeship in between Japan and, and France, and I don't know how we're going to leapfrog to Gramercy Tavern because I definitely want to get there in your iconic um, way of cooking there. Uh, but tell me, so here you were in France, you went to cooking school in Paris, and you've come back. Who, how, now how did you negotiate the restaurants in New York? Did you know you wanted to be a chef? Was that, you know, an over, you know, how did that sort of manifest? Yeah, by, by the time I was headed back to New York, I had worked in, um, in five different restaurants in uh, France, kind of uh, scattered around the country, and I was, I was definitely hooked. Um, I was lucky enough to have a chef uh, make a phone call to Daniel Boulou. And when I arrived in New York, uh, there was a spot waiting for me in his restaurant uh, when the restaurant was located on 76th Street. So I had a chance to, that was my first experience working in New York City. And I had never lived, I had never even visited New York City. So I was sufficiently intimidated by working in his kitchen and just, you know, getting set up in the city. After Tokyo and Paris? Uh <laughs> Well, it was a new adventure, and I, you know, it's interesting when growing up uh, in in the United States outside of New York City, we're we grow up with this cultural uh, uh, knowledge of New York and uh, and New York culture, but we're we're there's uh, yeah, I think there's a I felt really intimidated. I was intimidated because there was a you know a fire escape that led to the sidewalk, and I was sure someone was coming <laughs> through my window every night. Uh, I was intimidated by the fast, intense pace of. Um, of restaurant life, I had we had 80 seats in that restaurant, um, two teams, a, a day team and a night team. I had never seen anything like that. Mm-hmm. I'd never worked in a restaurant that big. Mm-hmm. On a Saturday night, we would do 240 covers, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I remembered, you know, the difference between life and death hinged between 58 and 64 covers at, at restaurants that I had worked in in France. So I, I, I didn't have any experience at working at that volume level and at that speed. And it was it was an eye opening experience. So let's quickly go through the uh, restaurants that you did work in, and then I, I need to get into Gramercy Tavern and what you're doing there. So I, I, I got lucky at every step of the way, kind of um, probably you know diving in and uh, in over my head, and I had a chance to work um, as a sous chef and uh, later the chef de cuisine at March Restaurant. 
Uh, I worked at both uh, Blue Hill in the city and uh, was able to be part of the opening team at uh, Blue Hill at Stone Barns. Mm. Um, and, um, and then I uh, set out uh, to open my own restaurant. And um, a conversation with Danny Meyer uh, turned in a different direction. And, uh, and I had the opportunity to come and join the team at, at Gramercy Tavern. I've been there for six years now. Six years. Um, so how did that conversation, uh, you wanted to open your own restaurant, and now you've joined a, a group of restaurants, maybe the premier group of restaurants in the United States. And so how did, how did you make that decision? Um, Danny helped quite a bit formulate the business plan for, you know, the uh, kind of fledgling ideas that I had a, a, about a small small restaurant. He taught me a lot of good lessons early on in terms of thinking about scale. Um, every, Exa- young, every young chef. Examples. It's ironic because we just visited the new space, uh, Blanca, that has 12 seats. And right. recently, chefs have been able to shatter the notion of scale um, by opening minuscule jewel jewel box restaurants, but the reality of it is, is that you know every every young chef is dreaming of being able to control the style of their cooking in in a in a very small setting. Um, yet the business, if you really want to take care of a group, a large group of people, and take care of them well uh, in terms of salary and uh, in terms of benefits and uh, longevity. Um, to get ahead in 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 terms of business, then scale is really important. Um, everyone has sets out opening a, a a restaurant with a I guess with a, um, a goal in mind, and some of those those are purely artistic. Others are um, kind of leapfrogging, hoping for a better opportunity, finding investors, and then uh, some restaurants are set up to last a lifetime. And Gramercy Tavern is one of them. It's, uh, it's a restaurant that was built to endure, you know, years and years, and, and it evolves with the way people use it. it it's a foundation. It's a kind of platform that, that has a, a point of view and a very specific culture, but it's built to, um, to change. Right. So on- G- Gramercy Tavern, as many people know, was open probably 12 years ago. For How, how many years has it 18 been? 18. Oh, yeah. gosh, time flies when it's really <laughs> good. And uh, Tom Colicchio was the first chef. And But Tom Colicchio is just a totally different chef than you are. And so he put his mark on it. But today, Gramercy Tavern, to me, is a totally different restaurant, you know, if you go to eat the food. And you have just been honored by your peers as the greatest chef in the United States. How does that translate into the plate? What is Gramercy Tavern today? And, and what, is, what is the restaurant to you? Because you, you have made your mark on it. Well, there, I think there are two basic notions um, that, that are important in understanding uh, the restaurant today. And that is... Um, First of all, in, in terms of recognizing the staff, um, I, my goal is to create more avenues than roadblocks. Um, there are talented people that come our way with tons of potential. They're not always the most experienced cooks, uh, but they're people that have uh, interesting backgrounds and they're full of potential. They have, um, they have a sense of beauty. Most everyone that we hire has a sense of um, not... Beauty is kind of a, a, a delicate word, but it's a sense of um, uh, taste 
that that comes from their comes from their you know their background. I can't really teach that. I can I can teach folks how to become proficient line cooks and can teach them ways and to work together uh, effectively. But but we always we're always looking for people that come into the restaurant with a a, a sense of uh, connection to the world around them to ingredients. Um, so the you know the I think the other important mission of the restaurant is to tell a story through its ingredients and um, it's fantastic uh, because the Gramercy Tavern is founded on um, belonging to its community. Um, a tavern in concept would have always been connected to its local sources. This is a chance to you know to run with that theme and in New York City we could tell our story in any way. That we want, we could pick up the phone and have any ingredient from anywhere in the world tomorrow. But I feel like our story is so much stronger uh, when we're telling, when we're expressing it through the ingredients and not only technique, um, and when we're telling that story through ingredients that are connected to us culturally and literally connected because they're grown. Okay, n- this this near is us. I'm I'm going to try to go after something elusive here. Because there are many restaurants that say they're farm to table, and they are, you know, and there are many proficient and really great chefs who get the technique down. But you have that third quality to take it from, you know, really great meal to a celestial meal. And so I'm kind of trying to get, I know, you, you know you're great with your staff and you promote them and you're a great leader, but what is Michael Anthony on the plate when well, it comes out? I, and I look back at the, uh, the food memories that I have and the, the meals that have stayed with me over you know, the years and, and my life, and I recognize that there were a couple of key components that really all come down to trying to, you know, our effort is to tr- try to create these um, food memories, long-lasting food memories. And specifically in, in my style, that has to do with um, uh, e- every chef will say we cook simple food or we have simplified the kind of cooking that we do. But w- when I say we cook sim- simple, uh, simple food, it's not um, to make it approachable or universally popular. It's mostly to make it so that it creates this indelible image in, in, your, in your mind. Um, simple to me means unforgettable. Um, and also ties in with the general aesthetic of I, I've always loved dishes that tend to be under-manipulated. Um, I mentioned that we, you know, we, we really are not striving, while, while we're progressive in our thinking, uh, searching through all of our travels for ingredients that have marked us and you know, as, as chefs make us excited. And I say us because it's a collaborative effort at the restaurant. The sous chefs are very much involved in this process. Um, even line cooks are very much involved in it. But um, so, so while we're telling the story through local ingredients, um, we're not kind of shutting ourselves off. We're not creating blinders to interesting and progressive ideas that, that you know, take birth outside of, of our immediate area. We're not excluding ourselves from ingredients that that make our dishes better. Can you, can you give me a for instance? Well, I, I tend to lean towards, you know, some Japanese ingredients that um, 
that if handled in a certain way, you could look at it, if they're handled in a clumsy way or in a not, not a very thoughtful way, you could look at it and just say this is fusion food. If you interject ingredients or ideas from an outside culture and, and do it in another setting uh, and try to blend it, uh, it becomes fusion. And you know we've seen that that, at least that for me, doesn't necessarily create... Um, a long-lasting memory. It might be a fun meal on a particular night, but it's not. It's not. It won't endure. Uh, the the way I I tend to lean towards essential ingredients that you know. I'll, for example, kombu and katsuobushi are you know the foundation of Japanese cooking. And when I lived in Japan, I I learned about the specific places that they come from, which draws an interesting connection back to the way we cook in our American style. As we're starting to not for pretension or exclusivity. We're starting to focus on, um, on sourcing in a way that is connected specifically to the place where we're cooking. I live in, in New York. Um, I, I want to tell a story that's uh, connected to the Northeast. What's different about eating in New York uh, versus San Francisco or Paris or Tokyo? If I lived in any of those other places, the style of food that I cook would be different. The ingredients that I use would be different. And especially the rhythm and the flow through the year would be entirely different. So we're searching for this, um, this uh, I guess this would kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm hitting on the second point of what I think distinguishes our cooking at GT is um, what is specifically distinct about our place. So we've talked about food that's under manipulated or simple enough to remember at the end of a, a great meal. It's not really good enough for us to leave folks who eat at GT saying, wow, everything I tasted was wonderful. Um, You guys used the best ingredients. I'd like for people to remember I had a meal in late spring in which you used asparagus or, you know, the year's first peas or, you know, a a specific ingredient that you can't, you can't lose. You, You just can't you know, get your mind off of. So, so we have, we have this, this simple approach. We have this idea of, um, of it being connected culturally to, to a particular place. Um, and, uh, and, and I think all of the, when, when you have a meal that's anchored to a specific time and a specific place, and it is also, I guess the last element of this is when it's connected to that particular time of the year, a specific season, um, then it becomes one of those long-lasting memories. So we're in the business of uh, now more than ever in the restaurant while we're, we're adding to the story that has been put in, in, in front of us, a, a beautiful stage to talk about American cooking. We're, we're adding on to We're evolving um, what Gramercy Tavern has always stood for in terms of creating a standard of, of American dining. Um, we're seeing how the aesthetic of that American dining is evolving. Um, yeah, now, now more than ever, we're talking about um, a very distinct way of eating, both at Gramercy Tavern and having Gramercy Tavern add a, a, a very specific voice to what it means to kind of cook American food Okay, today. all right. Well, we're going to come back to that. We're going to have to take a, a short break here, but um, I want to get into the future. Thank you.
Welcome back. Uh, this is Dorothy Can Hamilton, for the CEO of the International Culinary Center, and we're on Chef's Story. And today, our very special guest is Michael Anthony, the executive chef of Gramercy Tavern uh, Restaurant in New York City, and the 2012 Outstanding Chef. That means Top Chef by the by the James Beard Foundation. And we're we've just gone through history and really uh, essence of his restaurant, Gramercy Tavern. Um, And I kind of want to pick up there again um, and say, you know, here here you are uh, in one of the top culinary cities in the world. You have access to every single kind of ingredient you can possibly want. You have a very sophisticated clientele. You, you probably can get any cook in the world to come and cook with you and the, and the staff, you know, are knocking on your door. Where do you want to go? You're a young, you're a young chef. Where, in five years, where, where is cooking evolving? Where is your cooking evolving? What is, where is Gramercy Tavern evolving? Uh, Gramercy Tavern is... Uh on its own is probably uh, a lifetime of work. Um, I mean, for all for everyone who has eaten there, you you know how um, it's really like operating two restaurants at once. So we we certainly have our hands full, and every every day, week, and month feels like you know the our checklist on improvements uh, is a mile long. So in and of itself, um, it's quite a dream to work in a restaurant uh, where. People come to work every day and they have the courage to say, um, we're really proud of what we do. Let's try to make this a little bit better. So that's a unique work environment. Um, There is a sense of, um, I guess, uh, education that is now part of the DNA of of that restaurant. It has always been um, connected to the communal spirit of, I think, all of Danny's restaurants. But Gramercy Tavern acts as a a bit of a graduate school in terms of uh, graduating great people. And so um, we are uh, we have had a great run in the last uh, couple of years um, uh, seeing young chefs that uh, have worked with me in the kitchen and have gone on to um, spread their wings. And, and if I can influence. just say something, you are one of the greatest mentors in in the world, I think, for young cooks. I know you just met, mentored Rose Weiss, who won the cooking Bocuse d'Or Comi uh, competition. Yeah. And uh, she couldn't have done it without you. And well, that you actively, I mean, a lot of chefs, you know, like La Camellia chef, he, he probably had people in his kitchen and you kind of learned by default, you know, but you actively uh, nur- nurture your people. Well, yeah, it's, I, I've noticed that in, in this business, for some strange reason, I mentioned it earlier, I think we tend to uh, set up more roadblocks than we do kind of create avenues for people. And I know that along the way, um, some folks helped me uh, through mentoring me and, and even sometimes with just great suggestions, but they gave me the time and the energy. Um, and, uh, and I feel like if, if I can do anything to say thank you to, for what happened to me, uh, I, I can do that for somebody else. So, so. I, I know that you're going to be educating the world now because you're coming out with the Gramercy Tavern Cookbook. Yes. Right. So yeah. tell me, tell me about that. What's the, you know, what's the momentum for that? 
Well, Good. it's been an amazing learning process. Uh, we are writing the story of Gramercy Tavern, uh, and that is going to be an amazing read for everyone who who has loved the restaurant for years, for everyone who's excited to learn about where the restaurant is headed, uh, to get a behind-the-scenes look at the people and you know this institution. It's going to be a dense, rich book filled with pictures that um, that will look gorgeous, you know, sitting on your coffee table. But at the same time, we we set out uh, from the very beginning to say that we wanted it to play a dual function. That not only should it look great. And, and make us feel proud uh, as a team to, to kind of recognize our, our work in, in beautiful pictures and writing. But we want it to be a book that people will, will cook from. Um, mm. We're using you know, the standard of the Union Square Cafe cookbook, which is a beloved cookbook. Uh, and if you look on so many in so many people's kitchens at home, they have it handy. It's a used book, so we we want for for this also to, you know, to to play that role to be a book that people will will kind of not only cherish but, but use. You it. want it stained. So I I was really. Um, yeah, yeah, that's right. funny. It's, it's funny because <laughs> I, I I say yes, but I here's one of the things I would like for people to do with this book, and this here's how I use cookbooks: I read them, I close them, and then I cook, and I change things, and I you know I I deviate from the process. We. Uh, uh, granted, I, I do this for a living, so I might have a few more tools, but I hope that people at home, no matter what their skill level is, will will kind of take the book for that value. There are some inspired ideas. I'd, I'd like for it to hopefully influence the way they choose their ingredients and the way they go about you know, setting up their kitchen and the certainly the dishes that they serve to, to their families and friends. But I hope that they'll end up closing that book and setting it aside so it may not get the sauce stains on it. Not to protect it but simply to hope you know encourage people to cook from their own intuition so where what's still an exciting thing that you haven't done yet with food not cooking but maybe even a journey of eating somewhere or tasting mm. something what are some some of the uh, not challenges but uh, things you still want to do well keeping Gramercy Tavern relevant is probably our number one passion uh, any business especially uh, a restaurant business has is a dynamic uh, it's a dynamic entity it's not a piece of art you can't just finish it put it on the wall and keep it dusted uh, and well lit for people to appreciate it it changes um, with the way our guests and the way our staff use it so keeping it relevant uh, means um, how, how do we search for new ideas? How are we evolving as cooks? And this, um, I have two great trips that are planned for this year. I, I'll get to visit Blackberry Farm for the uh, first time uh, with a group from the James Beard Foundation. Um, Tell us about Blackberry Farm. Blackberry Farm is a, a wonderful uh, restaurant and resort um, in eastern Tennessee. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it's a working farm uh, as well as a uh, um, uh, a great getaway. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a Relais Chateau property uh, with uh, a fantastic, uh, dynamic working team in the kitchen and uh, and on in the gardens. Um, they they produce wonderful foods, and we'll get together to have a, a symposium on uh, food policy and to do some collaborative cooking and hopefully get our hands dirty a little bit in the garden. Mm. Um, so I'm looking forward to that uh, being an inspiring trip. Uh, I hope that I'll be able to discover 
some new uh, plants and varieties. We're always on the search for um, for new things that we can encourage our favorite growers here <clears throat> to to plant. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're waiting for some seeds. Uh, Do for, you work with farmers directly um, that they're planting for <clears throat> you? And yeah, m- most of our food comes directly from the Union Square Green Market, and now the uh, Grow NYC has created the uh, wholesale. Uh, green market, uh, which is located in Long Island City, <clears throat> that um, that ch- uh, operation could very well change the uh, change history. Why? Could very well change the face of the way we buy food in New York City. Well, it's an extension of uh, the green market <clears throat> and the green market network. It's it's uh, owned and operated by. Um, the city-sponsored organization Grow NYC, um, and we're, you know we're really seeing the birth of uh, a healthy, uh, dynamic wholesale operation, which um, for years and years, uh, for all of us who either shop personally or for our restaurants at the at a green market, and in our neighborhood that's Union Square, um, you know we've played that game of grabbing as many bags as we can and throwing them in a taxi and racing back to the kitchen. Or in our case, you know, I, I feel lucky because I work with an all-star team and Modesto Batista is a, a New York iconic figure. And you see him with his, you know, hybridized wheelbarrow rolling in and out of, of the green market. Everyone sees Modesto and, uh, and the sees part, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. he's, a, he's attached to the, to the market. So that's where most of our ingredients come from. Um, but we've also seen that um, we, we want to figure out how uh, slightly larger restaurants or li- larger operations uh, can buy on a, on a larger scale. Uh, the, the green market is wonderful and deserves all of our support, but how do we get more local foods involved in, uh, in restaurants and institutions? So uh, it, we're really just seeing the birth of this, uh, this idea that's been on the table for years now. Uh, they found the right um, the right location, and they put to, they have the the right money backing it. Uh, and now we're going through the growing process of figuring out how to set up a, a system that works. So, um, but outside of that, yes, we and I think this is a way that the restaurant will continue to evolve. Is how can we um, play a, the a role model in terms of how the restaurant connects outside the four walls of. Uh, uh, of the restaurant in order to source food. And so a lot of chefs, t- picking up on that point, start second and third restaurants, sometimes bistros or, you know, something a little more casual. Is that anything that interests you? Well, uh, it's a little premature to, <laughs> <laughs> to discuss, but I, I'll say that we have such an amazing core team right now uh, at Gramercy Tavern, and whenever you feel this mass of talent and and more than talent this um this kind of tight uh connection uh, of people we we have the opportunity to start to dream a little bit and so Mm. we'll see where where how that evolves in the future but um you know we definitely have the luxury of being able to dream not only about food but um, the setting in which we we might serve it as an educator because a chef is you know you have to kind of teach your kitchen what are we don't have much time left i i'd like you to think about two two groups of people to talk to if you could say something not to thank them you thank everybody all the time but this is to really say this is how i hope you will grow you know one is your client who eats at gramercy tavern and the other is the group of people who want to become a chef and have that dream 
what are two things you can say to them to help them move to a new level mm-hmm. of experience? Well, I'll start. I'll start with the the young cooks out there. Uh, I I think that uh, moving forward in this business um, takes obviously uh, this this is an, an obvious answer. It takes uh, it takes discipline and persistence. You you identify what you love to do. Recognize that that is uh, a gift to be able to lead your life and follow your calling. Uh, I certainly feel lucky that that I was able to do that in my lifetime. Um, and uh, secondly, along the way, you have to recognize um, what makes you unique. Uh, so while while you're growing up in kitchens and learning a new set of technical skills and uh, constantly feel no matter where you get into the business, whether you're a, a career changer or just graduating from high school, um, it's uh, it's important to recognize your differences. We feel really self-conscious of of our uh, our weak spots as we grow up in kitchens, and we get criticized for those things. It's a pressure-filled environment, but those differences and sometimes even those weaknesses turn into your greatest strength because it defines who you are. Mm-hmm. So. I think as as young cooks are growing in the kitchen and and applying themselves to being disciplined and persistent, um, they should also be searching for what are their unique qualities and and characters. In terms of our guests, you know, I think we see it happening. Um, I love it when our guests want to get more information. They want to get behind the scenes. They want to know what makes us crazy about uh, the ingredients that we serve and the, the things that we do to them. So, so I, um, the, I think the, um, the current amount of information that's available on the internet, on radio, on TV is, uh, you know, a fascinating process. And, um, we have an amazing story to tell at Gramercy Tavern. I love it when people level those those questions, whether it's table side or they, they take time to stay after a meal and visit the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um, in some senses, you know, we've always seen that behind every chef there's a show off. But in our case, <laughs> I think we have a story to tell. Yeah. And and so, yeah, I, I think as a, as a dining community, we benefit um, by living in New York where uh, where we have an in, a very knowledgeable and intense dining community. But as they reach out for more and expect more of restaurants, mm. um, they should, ex- they should, I hope that they'll want to know, you know, the story behind the scenes and, and have high expectations of, of restaurants that they eat in. Where does that food come from and, and what, what makes it so special? Well, I just want to say that if anybody wants a special meal, and uh, has not been to Gramercy Tavern. It's a lifetime uh, pleasure, and you will have indelible memories. Uh, Michael, I want to thank you for taking time off from your very busy schedule to come out and talk with us. And uh, I want to thank Jack Inslee, our producer, and a shout-out to Heidi Tickle and uh, Joe Sevier, who are my assistant producers. And we'll see you next time on Chef Story. Thank you. Thanks, Dorothy. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.